Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Yuval Brisker, a serial tech entrepreneur in Cleveland, Ohio. Yuval was the co-founder and CEO of Toa Technologies, which was acquired by Oracle in 2014. In this episode, we're going to dive into Yuval's early career, first as an architect with an interest in technology. He realized that the great cathedrals of our time were being built in technology, not in bricks and mortar. Yuval co-founded Toa Technologies with Arad Karmi, and his biggest challenge was convincing people that an architect and a musician could actually build software. Starting in 2004, they raised over $100 million in venture capital and finally sold to Oracle in 2014, a big win and success for Cleveland and Ohio. And now we're going to fast forward to what Yuval's working on today as founder and CEO of Alvier, which has created The Hive, a state-of-the-art platform that streamlines and automates the delivery of financial projects. Please enjoy my conversation with Yuval Brisker. Happy to have Yuval Brisker here with me after a long hiatus of seeing each other. Yuval Brisker is the founder, co-founder, and CEO of Mezu, a new private finance transaction company, the Zoom, the Zoom of uh, payments, basically. Um, Zoom and the signal of payments, I would call them. Awesome. And then uh, prior to that, Yuval was the uh, co-founder and CEO of Toa Technologies in Cleveland, Ohio, started in 2003 and sold to Oracle in 2014. It was an early SaaS company in field service management and a huge success uh, for the region. We're glad to have you here. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So first of all, uh, it'd be great to hear more about your journey leading up to Toa and now Mezu and as an entrepreneur in the middle of the country. Well, you know, I had a very uh, circuitous path. I started my career as an architect, actually, but but in architecture and technology together. So I was in the sort of the first generation of architects who were using CAD and, and doing so, you know, kind of, you know, putting the wires together almost. And I quickly understood that I was more interested in the, in the technology than I was interested in the architecture itself as a business. Although I love architecture, I would say about architecture that's, you know, a great art, but a terrible profession. So, so through that, through my sort of my involvement in uh, technology, in architecture, I realized that, you know, the great cathedrals of our time were being built in technology, not in bricks and mortar. And so I, I decided that's where I want to go. And so I made a fast break from, you know, 10 years of education and apprenticeship and beginning to work in the, in the architectural world into the technological world. And I actually made a few steps into it first, you know, starting my first company, which was really kind of a user of technology. We were doing CGI animations using, you know, sort of advanced software solutions that were being used by Hollywood, but doing them for architecture. And then quickly I realized, well, I don't even want to do one-off using technology. I want to actually produce something that produce a widget that can be produced once and sold a million times. And the only way to do that in technology is actually to build software. So I moved oh. into software. Where did you grow up? I was born in Israel, 
but my childhood was actually in California. My parents went to school in, in, in Davis, California. And so I was a kind of a campus child and UC Davis. I really kind of absorbed a lot of that California spirit as a child. And when, by the time my parents went back to Israel, I was already a teenager in high school and I finished high school in Israel. And then I was spent five years in the Israeli Air Force where again, I was exposed to technology because we were using a lot of technology in the airport, in the Air Force. And, uh, and I was really on the more technology user side of the, of the Air Force. So I, I was really, uh, I was exposed to, to the world of technology from very early on, um, both from a sort of atmospheric point of view by being in California. And then, you know, being in the army in a very technologically, you know, sort of centered environment, and ultimately, I decided to go study architecture. But as I said, you know, it was a quick, pretty, you know, I was within three years that I was working in profession, I decided, I got to find a new profession, a new direction. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear to me that it was going to be technology. First thing, it was like mid late 90s, the internet.com beginning to sort of swirl. And, you know, there was a lot of people who were getting it already at that time that this was going to be huge. And I really felt like I wanted to be in the midst of, of, of what was, this, you know, the, the main thrust of business and, you know, economy and, uh, and uh, culture and life uh, as I saw it. So I made the switch. How did you end up in Cleveland? Well, my first job, most first sort of senior executive job as in, in, in the world of software was working for a friend of mine who was an Israeli, who I met in, in the Israeli Air Force, and had built one of the first sort of, I would say, easy to install, very flexible, and, and focused on sort of small, medium-sized businesses in the telecommunications space billing area. So he'd built a billing and customer care software for small telcos. That was the time of sort of the, the deregulation of the telecommunications industry. And so we, he hired me. I was here in, in the United States already. I'd moved back here when I was beginning my career as an architect. And he hired me to, to build his subsidiary in the United States and run after small telcos. They were called Celex at the time to sell them this building and customer care software. And I was in the technology. I wasn't a software programmer. I never studied you know, software programming and I never wrote a line of code to today, by the way. Uh, so I, I really needed somebody to work with me to you know, to be my sales engineer while I was selling the vision and the ideas and, and, the, and doing the business sales uh, and beginning to build the company around me. Um, I hired, we hired a guy who was also Israeli, who was like me, kind of a refugee from another profession, me from architecture, and he was a classical musician. And uh, his name was Irad Karmi. He and I became like, you know, an inseparable duo. We were flying everywhere, talking to customers, talking about technology, talking about our transition from sort of the arts world, more or less the practical arts world to technology. And when the dot-com crash happened, you know, and then after that 9-11, uh, we were both living in New York. He was married with, you know, three kids and... He decided, and there was really no work to be found in technology after the, after sort of the, the, the dual, you know, catastrophes of, of the dot-com crash and the market crash and, you know, 9-11. So he was married to a girl from Cleveland. So uh -huh. he was, she was <laughs> born and raised here. And so they retreated to Cleveland 
to be next to her parents so that he could actually continue doing consulting work, travel around the country, but she would have a place to be. And he was the guy I started to with. So the idea we started kind of, we talked a lot about ideas for where technology was going and what we wanted to do and talked about the fact that we wanted to start a, a business together after the company that we'd worked for crashed. And so the idea for Toa was born and, you know, we were bootstrapping. So basically funding it ourselves. And we both said, well, we're not going to do that in New York. Let's do it somewhere, you know, affordable. <laughs> and you said, well, I'm already here in Cleveland. Might as well build it here. Anyway, it's going to be a web-based, you know, software system. The word SaaS didn't exist yet. The rest is history. I moved here. So, so I got to ask you, so you also have your master's in cin- Cinema, Cinema studies, studies from NYU. Yeah. What role does that play for you as an entrepreneur? I'm a guy who's just all about learning. So I believe that everything you, you're exposed to, you know, cultivates your mind and your fertilizes sort of the brain cells, the gray cells, and, you know, and, and provides you more and more perspective about the world. So I, I was all about really kind of, you know, enhancing my understanding of things that really interested me. It's an essence. It's it's an essential part of us humans, you know, to want to be able to piece together a narrative, and and also build aspirations around you know ideas. And so, to me, both the architectural component and the understanding of design and, and technology of putting buildings together, and and process of putting buildings together, as well as you know the the sort of the the critical thinking and and looking at sort of the way stories are told in art in in, in cinema. Those two combine together to, I think, to just make me a better professional and, and to give me, op- you know, sort of an op- open access to, to different ways of looking at, at, at things and also, you know, to bring some of those sensibilities to the table when it comes to marketing and branding and, you know, and design and usability and, 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 and really the story that's being told every time you open up an app or, or go through a, uh, an app, any kind of piece of software there's always something kind of, kind of an underlying journey. Right. So all those things kind of inform my entrepreneurship. You know, it's not, not they're, they're not disconnected. They're not over here. And they're like, you know, things that I do for right, my right. pleasure. I, I, I just find pleasure in all of them. And so I, I think that, that and I think of the great entrepreneurs in, in history, and I don't think they're dissimilar in many ways. They're, they're you know, they're enlightened Renaissance people. You know, they, they, they think outside the box. They don't, take the course, you know, the normal course, they, they, you know, it's like the think different ad by Steve Jobs. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the, the, those people are, are, are not conformists by definition. No, we have the iPhone because Steve Jobs wanted to listen to some of his favorite music. That's why we have the iPhone. Right. So yeah, I think, you know, exactly. you look at that, he wasn't, I mean, that's a nonconformist from day, from, you know, from day one, right? right. We don't know what he was like as a child, but I would assume, you know, wasn't a very conformist child either. So to me, well, that- from what I've read, he 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 very much uh, obviously knew the importance of design and and the storytelling of design. Right. That's I remember my first Mac that I had, finding out that inside the cover, you know, they all their signatures were inside the cover, inside the thing. So he, no matter how you looked at the device, inside the back, the bottom, it, it had to be it had to be beautiful from all sides. It wasn't enough just to have a fa- fancy front end on it. And I believe in that because I think that, you know, human beings have a sensitivity towards the aesthetic and they, they, that, that sometimes they can't even, you know, they can't even articulate it. 
and why. But but they they know when something is beautiful. They know when something is you know is refined. They know when something is thought through, and 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 they know that those are things that people just instinctually know. So you know that they that that's not you can never overlook that when you're doing anything. You know, especially when you're designing software and designing you know articles for people to work with. And and I think you're that trying that, to you're you're trying to get it to resonate the product with the with the customer, right? So so share with us some of that journey with Toa, for example, and what the um, where you found success, but also where you found challenges, perhaps. And you raised would you raise about a hundred million for the company? We raised $105 million in venture and about $30 million in debt. So about $135 million. Wow. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah. So, so share with, with, for those that are listening, you did that in Cleveland. What were some of the, what were some of the challenges and what were some of the advantages? I mean, I think the advantages at the end of the day outweighed the challenges, of course, because success speaks for itself. But I think that along the way, I think there was a lot of challenges in really convincing people here that, you know, that an architect and a musician could actually build software. <laughs> that was a joke we used to tell ourselves, you know, you know, because people kind of, it was something that people actually said to us. Yeah, really? That, that, yeah. Was, your, that was your caricature? That was, that was the caricature that, that people made of us, you know. It was, uh, it was uh, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, when you think about the sort of the, the people who innovate, like I said before, and they're coloring outside the lines in a way. And I think that, the, uh, that, that doing that here initially was quite difficult because we could find very few people who, you know, very, even understood what technological innova innovation or, or investment was about. So I think that that was the, the initial struggle was really to, get people to believe that it wasn't that you, if you had a great idea and you had a little background in, and we had background in technology, we worked in software companies before. So it wasn't, it wasn't a question of like, you know, do we know what we're doing? Right. He was a programmer. I was, you know, a business, you know, technology business guy at this point. And all I was thinking and breathing was technology for them. But still we were, you know, we were first time founders and, 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 and I think that it, there was a lot of skepticism initially about our ability to execute in any degree of, you know, success at the scale we were actually, you know, we were actually shooting for, because there was always an ambition, you know, there was always an ambition to be global and, you know, and leader and whatever. And, you know, when you start out and you're just two people, you may, talk, you know, speak the language of ambition, but, but most people will kind of pigeonhole you and say, you know, well, Let's see where this goes, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, get back. Get back to me later, you know. Because ninety-nine percent of the people that have that, that dream, that's all it ends up being, right? They don't execute against it, so it's a dream. So you hear ninety-nine of them. It's hard to separate. What's the who's the one or the one team that's going to turn that dream into reality? I, I mean, I don't fault people. I just say that you know, when you ask like what the challenges are, I think that's a big challenge. I think, I think the job you're in is super hard actually, because. I think, what is you? What are you trying to? You know, what are you actually trying to identify? I mean, you can. Somebody can have, like you said, somebody can have a great idea and not be able, not have the wherewithal to actually execute on it, or the internal, you know, conviction or resilience. So I, I think that that, you know, your job is ultimately, you know, every every venture capitalist says, you know, oh, we invest in people, 
but most of them invest in, you know, most of them, not all of them, by the way, the good ones, I think, really do invest in people. And, and, they, and they, they invest in the combination of people and an idea, not just in an idea or not just in people, but in people and an idea. But I think that if, you, if I was going to, you know, err on anything, I would be erring on the side of the, of the people, mm-hmm. always. Because, because if, people, if the people that you invest in are, you know, strike you as intelligent, ambitious, resilient, take no prisoners, then you need to believe that they will figure it out. Right. And I think that that's, that's, that's where I found the, difficult, the, the biggest difficulty at the beginning of my you know, entrepreneurial career is that, that until we found those people who said they'll figure it out, you know, it was very hard to raise money. Who were some, some of your first investors? Draper, Triangle from Pittsburgh and early stage partners from Cleveland. They no longer exist. So Jonathan Murray and Mike Stubler. And, and Jonathan Murray, you know, was one of the first people I was introduced to. And he, I, I told him at the, at the beginning, at the first time I met him, I told him, I'm not looking for money. I'm just looking for advice. <laughs> I was actually looking for money. Just never say it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, oh, but, but, I, but I was also kind of looking for advice. And, and I realized, yeah. you know, he wasn't going to invest until I bring back some evidence that what I had was, you know, valuable. So I told him I'm going to go, go and raise some seed money and get some new, some customers and I'll come back and when I do. When did it start to change? When did it start to momentum shift in your favor? I mean, the minute we had customers, three customers, you know, and we came back and then raised a small seed round. It wasn't a huge customer commitment, by the way. It was just initial. And they weren't big customers, but they were enough to, for people to say, this is interesting. So at that moment, he immediately called, you know, Mike Stubler at Draper and said, I think I have something interesting here. So next day, Mike came down, and we met with, the four of us met. And, you know, it wasn't an immediate, they, they, gave, they gave us a term sheet, we didn't like it, you know, we went out looking for other money, you know, we found some competitive office, but at the end of the day, we really wanted to raise money from here. Because we, first thing, we didn't want to be you know, puppet stringed from the coasts. We liked the idea that there was going to be, you know, local people involved, you know, and it wasn't idealistic. It was ultimately they gave us a better term sheet and they gave us the valuation we were looking for, even though they felt it was stretched. And then they became, you know, lifelong partners. I'm still partnered with Mike. And it worked out. Worked out for everyone. And I think that was a a turning of the tide because that gave us, you know, wherewithal for another two years of operations. Yeah, describe the, the kind of the scale of the growth that you had at TOA. I mean, at the beginning, we, we really just focused on, on very few customers. We, we really took the idea of focus, focus, focus on something and make it successful, make their customers successful. We took it very much to heart. And the customers we had, you know, didn't let us off the hook. So, you know, it wasn't, we couldn't go mass immediately. We had to focus on one customer at a time. It was an enterprise software SaaS solution. It was a first of its kind SaaS application. And, in, and I'm talking about in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, Salesforce was out there, but they were selling to SMBs. And we yeah, were selling- In 2003, we, we, I mean, we hadn't recovered from the dot-com bubble yet. No. So you're thinking about that time, it's kind of like companies now being started, you know, after pandemic, et cetera. It's actually, actually a great time. And Great that time. was sort of the time frame when you were starting this. 
Yeah. I call it the nuclear winter post.com mm -hmm. because people didn't want to invest in enterprise software for seeing that it crashed big time. And, and, uh, and of course they didn't want to invest in, they didn't want to invest in software. <laughs> they didn't want to invest in consumer software. They didn't want to invest in enterprise software. They didn't want to invest in software. So it was not an easy time to raise money, but we did. We actually, the first real institutional money came in in 05. So by then we already had a little bit of success and, and yet, you know, SaaS hadn't been coined as a term yet. The idea of enterprise software being run in the cloud, the cloud hadn't been coined as a term yet. Salesforce, I think, just went public in 2004. Right. But they were, it was a completely small business, small, medium-sized business play at that point. They never, they weren't delivering, you know, cloud-based, flexible SaaS, configurable software to enterprises if they were delivering something to the enterprise they were doing it custom but we were very inspired by 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 mark benioff i mean you know everything we were reading every word that he was saying we were drinking every word he was saying mm -hmm. and it really really affected us deeply and and i think we fashioned the whole company around what he was saying but we took it to a different level which is we were going after tier one enterprises because they were cable companies and telephone companies and utility companies initially just cable and so those first years, we were just focusing on attracting cable companies because that we felt like that was the lowest hanging fruit. And we were right. And that they were in the most need, we were right. And that they would be more, more open because they were, they were really just consolidating as from regional to more national, that they would be more opening, open to new technology. And I think we were pretty right there too. And they were generally as a... As an industry, they were a lot more swashbucklers, and and uh, and and now they're not. Now they're completely established and obviously somewhat declining business. But at the time, they were going through a huge transformation. They were going into digital. They were they were you know providing VOD. They were providing you know triple play phone. I mean, they were just really emerging as a major player in the communications mm -hmm. space. So that is uh, you know. That was how we, we, we trajectored at the beginning because we focused, we had Charter Communications was our first cable customer. And we focused on them like, you know, intensely to make them super successful so they would take any reference, you know, that we ever sent their way, which they did. Very important. And we built the contrast so they paid us a big sum of money at the end of, you know, b before we even started implementing, they paid us $885,000 check biggest check I ever had in my life in my hands at that time and that was it you know we were on our way and from there the minute we really kind of you know implemented them and they were happy then we could have went to every cable company in the country and we started finding ones that were more interested than others and then we sent them to charter and charter told them we were great and then we did the second one the second one was also built for reference and we told they told everyone we were great and the third one was built for reference and we really focused a lot on referenceability and we kind of built the stack that way, you know, one after the other, one after the other. And, you know, ultimately, you know, the, uh, we got to the big break, which was uh, our dish network contract. Dish was sort of the biggest company we'd worked with and they were the most notorious for being tough customers and, and, and very demanding and, and, and also very innovative and very risk-taking. And so they kind of bet their whole field service business on us. And they bet it on us, not just the technology, but on the people. 
Just like the investors. Just like the, because there are investors. I used to always say that to my people, our customers are investors too. Mm-hmm. Great point. Because they put their money in their, where their mouth is and they put their career on the line. I used to say everybody's an investor, by the way. Of course, there's the investors, investors, those people who take, you know, put their money in their, their hand in their pocket and put money on the table and give it to you so you can try and succeed. You know, every family that, of, of every person who worked for us was an investor. Every customer was an investor. Every employee was an investor. You know, that's how I looked at it. Way way. I still look at it that way. I, I operate from that point of view, actually. Great. Because it, 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 it gives you a sense of urgency like nobody's business. Like, right. ah, everybody's an investor. Yeah, there's an opportunity cost for the employees, everybody else. I mean, they're, they're giving up years life of their time. life, potentially, right? So how does that, so let's transition to Mezu. So talk a little bit about where the idea for Mezu came from and lessons that you learned in TOA that you're bringing to Mezu now. Well, you're asking the most interesting questions of all now, because now we're talking about the day-to-day reality, right? So, you know, one is for the history books, right? We grew it to be a major global business. There were presence in 25 countries, 750 employees worldwide, name brand customers everywhere, Virgin Media, Telefonica, you know, AT&T, you know, Home Depot, blah, 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 the whole nine yards. Got customers from New Zealand all the way to Eastern Europe from, you know, top of, from Canada to the tip of Argentina. I mean, major success. Wow. Big sale to Oracle in 2014. And then, you know, I was, I, 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 I couldn't retire. It was impossible. You know, it's just, you're running like that crazy, you know, for so many years and you just, you constantly also accumulating ideas as you go. And you, you're empowered by the fact that you did it once. Why not do it again? <laughs> bigger and better <laughs> and so yeah i mean i can't well, i was i was going around with an idea for for money for for digital cash i really felt like digital cash didn't exist exist the, the payment apps were digital checks meaning you wrote a name you wrote a number and you sent it off electronically just like a check but the idea of like giving money to somebody without having to exchange any you know personal information and being able to do that internationally going across border that nobody had done. So I and I and I had encountered that problem myself, you know, as a as a as a traveler and, and and a business person, wanting to pay people cash but not having cash in my pocket, and then always sort of fiddling trying to figure out how am I going to use my payment apps to do that? No, I can't. Well, I have to go to the ATM and so on and so forth. And and I realized there was a gap there that I really wanted to fill. And that's how Mezu became. Mezu means cash in, in Hebrew. Actually, it's the first two syllables of the word cash. Obviously, I'm from Israel. The word cash is Mezuman, and Mezu became the company. And we were off trying to, you know, building, I, I, I was, I, my, my previous partner decided he's staying at Oracle. He wants to run the business there, run the application. And I, one of my employees from Toa, who I talked to about the idea was kind of this great, you know, combination of both business person and programmer. And so we became partners. So I partnered with my, one of my former employees and uh, off we went, raised the money, and uh, and started the company. And then we hit a wall. <laughs> what was that? Have you ever tried to do business in the, in, in the financial and services industry? Super I hard. I have not invested in a, in a fintech company yet. It's very difficult. To do what we, we were trying to do, 
it was near impossible. You started in, in January 2017. What what did you explore? Everybody's talking about Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto. Did you go down that path? No. Why not? Consciously. Because we felt like crypto was not, you know, ready for prime time for the average consumer. It was too volatile. People didn't understand it. And they wouldn't adopt it. You know, they would they might speculate in it. But, you know, you need to have money to speculate or you have no money, you know, and you, and you ended up doing, you know, throwing a bit of money here early and you made money. And I mean, it, it seemed like to me, like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't ready for prime time. It wasn't ready for the consumer. So that was out of the question. We, we built this flexible system that would be, would be able to work with any currency, including crypto. But we didn't think that that was the path. We wanted to build something that was private, but we didn't want to build something that was, you know, misunderstood or hard to understand so that was off the table and i'm i'm all i'm all for crypto by the way I'm, i have i think i think that long term the, the trajectory is for crypto but you know i think that first thing people they don't understand what the foundation what's what what's the what underlying asset you know supports that currency and they don't have feel that the government is behind it then they're going to think twice about using it for you know as a as a tender a legal daily usable tender so that was one blockchain was just not mature enough you know instantaneous transactions was not what the blockchains was about and so and no one has actually cracked the blockchain for that kind of level of instantaneity yet uh, so that was immediately off the table we built our own ledger that served our needs and made it you know easy for us to actually control the speed of and the accuracy of so we have our own ledger. And then, you know, the biggest hurdles were regulatory and, and financial, you know, uh, services, banking services, uh, fraud, risk management, all the things that you would kind of, as an entrepreneur, you really don't want to deal with. And then you find, find out that you can't deal, you can't even, you can't put it in the hands of any consumer without actually dealing, checking all those boxes. And that became a big, long, painful saga. It took us a year and a half to go live with the app. And Did you bring on anybody onto your team with that background? Yeah, of course. Within two months, we understood without having a serious financial compliance regulatory affairs guy on board, we were going to get nowhere fast. So we found one. He's still with us. He's super critical and inter- in- instrumental to the business. I mean, he's a, without him, we wouldn't be here. And he happens to be young and he used to be a regulator and he worked in fun startups and he's really kind of a very well-rounded, you know, super flexible, you know, thoughtful guy, but he's chief compliance officer now for us. And he's, I, I can't, I can't say enough good words about him, but, but I, I can also say that we wouldn't exist as a business without him. But, but let me tell you what we're, what's happening right now. We're actually shutting down the payment app. Why is that? leave the shocker for the last minute, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I think <laughs> because we waited, you know, because it took us so long to go live that, you know, and by the way, this is an exclusive, but of course this is going to be aired some other time. So by then we'll have relaunched the company. We're pivoting because we've built a phenomenal foundation, technological and financial, in, you know, uh, a services foundation to serve our own ambitions and needs whether it was the payment processing capabilities or the ledger capabilities or the, or the uh, 
cross-border currency exchange capabilities or the banking capabilities, the ability to actually have a bank account in our app, whether it was the compliance and, and risk and, and fraud uh, management capabilities. We have a fully decked out platform for providing you know, financial services in a box to anybody who wants to provide financial services to customers. And we realized also that because it took us so long, we went live in Jan June of, of, in July of 18, then we hit a whole bunch of, you know, uh, of, of fraud activity in the, in the first you know, month or two that we got kicked out of our payment processor. Then we, you know, then, then we had to rebuild, we had to build our own capabilities. So it took us 24 months, essentially, from the day we were founded to the day to, that we were, you know, free and clear to really do business. And by then, the market had moved on. You know, Menmo was already established when we started, but we didn't feel they weren't at the level of, of, of leadership that they are today. And neither was Square. They were much earlier in their trajectory. And the, but the time that it took us to actually enable, we call it enable our application for, you know, for the kind of financial service, the kind of broad based, flexible and ambitious financial services that we wanted to provide people, a bank account, a debit card, a finance, the ability to transfer money abroad and so on and so forth. You know, you asked, what did I learn from the previous, you know, business? A lot and nothing. <laughs> this is different. This is a whole different animal. Yeah. That's why I say, you know, it's a, you have to be in the process of learning all the time because otherwise if you come in thinking that, you know, stuff, which I, by the way, did at the very beginning of this venture and I've been, you know, I've, I've gotten, you know, humbled. I now tell people it's a constant process of learning. You never know. It is a great point. I mean, I, the reason for our fund's name Refinery is because leaders are refined as leaders by overcoming adversity. Right? And, and exceptional leaders thrive in it, right? You, you want to be challenged. And we used to, my early venture days, I remember we used to talk about, you know, uh, with companies that struggled, oh, we need to hire a quote unquote, air quotes, been there, done that CEO. I think that's such a fallacy now because if if you hire somebody who thinks that they know the answers and they want to come into a and produce a high growth company, it's impossible. High growth companies have to have a high growth leader and to be a high growth leader, you have to be open to learning every day. 100%. If it's the first time. 100%. And I can say for myself that one of my learnings is that, is mm -hmm. that, you know, I I think that, you know, Looking back on on this you know trajectory, first thing we're rebranding and relaunching the company is a financial technology company that's going to sell to B two B. People said yeah. to me, "Why aren't you going to the th place that you most that you have so much experience?" And I was interested because I wanted to. I wanted the new experience. I yeah. knew I would learn. learn. Yeah. yeah, and so, but the problem is, I'm running a business, not a school. You know, and <laughs> so it, that's where it's, it's a really interesting. You know conundrum right for the entrepreneur and for the investors and so on and so forth so i mean my view on it is very simple as a as a as a as a serial entrepreneur it's either you stay in your lane and then you bring a lot of knowledge to the table you can't discount that and if you don't stay in your lane then don't come with any preconceptions about having any experience because you don't and the one thing you do have and that's very critical. And that's what you were saying about resilience is that you know that it's going to be tough and it's going to be a lot tougher the second time doing something new than it was, tough, than it was actually the first time because you already have the scars of the first time on your, on your body. And, and that's where confidence comes from, from, 
prior overcoming adversity before and saying, look, I entered this situation. I didn't know what to expect. I figured it out. And that gives you confidence next time to say, you know what, I'm going to, there's going to be some stuff that I know I don't know, but I know I can figure it out or find people to help me figure it out. A hundred percent. So I think that's at the end of the day, what I've learned, what I've learned is that the same traits that made me successful the first time are the traits that are going to make me successful the second time. Meaning there's no pre, there's no preconceptions. There's no assurance of success. There's no, you know, understanding of what to do at any given moment. Even though you have a lot of experience in the, in, in, in sort of the, the intangibles. And I think that's where that's, it's important. Mm -hmm. The, the intangibles are our culture and, 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 and motivation and reflection and the ability to live with that, you know, with the butterflies in your stomach for an extended period of time and know that even if you're going through a tough period, it's not over till it's over. And, and it's only, and even then, you know, you know, it, you carry it with you forever. So I, 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 I truly believe in that. And, and I think that that's my biggest lesson. And so I think that's, that's the interesting, you know, sort of dialogue between the, 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 the sort of inherent energy of the entrepreneur and their mind and their experience or their ideas and the investor. And I think that that's something that, you know, we kind of verged away from talking about Cleveland and Ohio in general. I, I think, you know, that's culture. And I think that culture mm -hmm. is still being built here. And I don't think that that kind of culture, ex that's the power of the culture of the Valley, I think, in that. And, and I think the last time we met, we actually physically, we actually were in the Valley, you and I. So, well, that's, that, that's, a, and that's a, that's a great point to end on. I mean, the, um, the experience you have and, and that experience that you can share with other entrepreneurs in that geography, in that culture, you know, you're, a, you're a, one of the fast frontier pioneers. You know, you've been through it. And I know for me, I, I see it as a obligation I have to other entrepreneurs coming up to try to share with them some of those learnings. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast is so that somebody, maybe somebody can learn from that experience, right? And because 100%. they're bumping into each other all the time in Silicon Valley. And in, in, in the middle of the country, we don't have that. We don't have that density. We have about eight times less density of entrepreneurs who've been through that than they would out there. So it's really important to share these stories. So I really appreciate Yuval, you sharing that. Thank you. And, and that journey and being uh, vulnerable uh, in terms of what you're going through now. And, and um, I wish you all the success and Thank you. the relaunch. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm always an optimist. You have to be in this business. You have to be, and so, right. you know, going for it. Awesome. Good for you. Thank you, so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Jason Warner, CTO at GitHub. <laughs>